So we've been going verse by verse through the book of John for a little over a year now. And I, and I would suggest to you that this morning's passage is both literally and figuratively the crux of the book of John. And I would also suggest that it's more than just the crux to this book. I would say that this is actually the crux of all human history. That in this three-hour period of time, while Jesus is hanging on the cross, this is the most consequential moment that has ever happened in the world. Because in this moment, Jesus Christ has completed his purpose on the earth. And God, in this moment, has provided a way to, to reconcile himself to a sinful and rebellious humanity. So the passage that we are looking at this morning has a certain seriousness to it. There's a certain somberness. Uh, there's a certain sadness to it as we look at Jesus as he dies on the cross. It's in this moment in history, however, that the fullness of God's eternal plan for our salvation is realized because our salvation rests in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So this morning, as we look at the crucifixion from John chapter 19, we're gonna look at this by asking three different questions. First, we're gonna start by saying, what happened on the cross? Secondly, why did Jesus die this way? And third, how is his death applicable to us today? So what, why, and how? What happened on the cross? Why did Jesus die this way? And how is Jesus' death applicable to us today? So let's start with what happened on the cross. Well, there are four different historical accounts of Jesus' crucifixion. In addition to what we see here in the book of John, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke also give us their account of the crucifixion. And they say some things that happened on the cross that John doesn't. And John says some things that they don't. And, and this morning, I'm not going to try to harmonize those four different accounts. Instead, we're just going to look at what John says about the crucifixion because he has a particular point that he wants to make that I want us to hear and understand. And when John records what happened on the cross, he, he lists four major events that happened on the cross. The first event that John records is that the soldiers who were crucifying him divided up his clothing. And we see that in John chapter 19, picking it up in verse 23. It says, when the soldiers had, cru had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. In those days, people typically wore two pieces of clothing, an outer cloak and then an inner tunic. And the outer cloak was a large square woolen cloth that they would wrap around the body. They'd fasten it at the, at the shoulders. And this cloak would also sometimes serve as a blanket to keep people warm at night. And it says here that the soldiers took Jesus's outer cloak and they divided it into four. And each of the soldiers got one of those pieces. In addition to that, though, there was also the inner, inner tunic. And the inner tunic was a close-fitting garment that was worn under the cloak. Typically, it was made of two pieces of cloth that, uh, that would have been then stitched together at a seam around the waist. However, John tells us that Jesus' tunic was made of one piece of material from top to bottom. And this would have been a little unusual in Jesus' day since looms that could create a single piece of cloth that long would have really only been recently invented at the time of Jesus. And this meant that Jesus's tunic was probably too valuable to cut up. It was more valuable as one solid piece of cloth. And so the soldiers instead decide to gamble and cast lots to see who would get to keep the whole tunic. 
So the first thing that John records is that the soldiers divided up Jesus's clothing. The second event that John records is that Jesus speaks to his mother, Mary, and to John from the cross. Take a look, starting in verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he looked at the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. John tells us that there are four women present at the crucifixion. And it gets a little confusing because three of those four women are named Mary. Uh, So first we have Mary, who's the mother of Jesus. We're familiar with her. We just heard about her at the Christmas story. Secondly, there's Mary's sister. So that would have been Jesus's aunt was there at the cross. Third, there was a woman named Mary who was the wife of Clopas. We don't know much about this Mary, but we do know that Clopas was actually somebody who Jesus ran into on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection in Luke chapter 24. And then finally, there was another Mary, Mary Magdalene. Magdalene just means from Magdala, which was a city in Galilee. So it's just Mary who was from Magdala. And in Luke 8, 2, we learn that Jesus cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. In addition to these four women, there was also the disciple whom Jesus loved, standing nearby the cross. This is how the author, John, always referred to, refers to himself in the book, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John is the only of the 12 disciples that we know for sure was at the cross. It appears that all the other disciples had fled and were probably in hiding. Nonetheless, when Jesus sees John and sees his mother, he says to his mom, behold, your son, referring to John. And he says to John, behold, your mother. Mary would have probably been 40 or 50 years old at this time. She's very likely a widow at this moment. And so as he says to John, behold your mother, what he's doing is he's saying to John, will you take care of and will you provide for your mom? Because a widow, she probably had no means of providing for herself. You know, we don't see a lot of Jesus' interaction with his mom in the Bible. There's just not a lot of discussion of what their relationship was like. But here we get a glimpse that Jesus cared deeply for his mom, even to the end. Because here he's, he's suffering on the cross. He's in torture. He's in pain. And yet he's aware of the people around him. And he cared enough to make sure that his mom would be provided for after she was gone. John was keeping the law of God even while on the cross. Because the law of God says, honor your father and your mother. And he was doing that even while he was under such great suffering. So the second event is that Jesus spoke to Mary and to John. The third event that that John records is that Jesus proclaims it is finished, and then he gives up his spirit. Take a look at verses 28 to 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head. And he gave up his spirit. Says Jesus knew that he was towards the end of his life here. And this speaks to the fact that Jesus is conscious and he's coherent the entire time that he hung upon the cross. And that's not a foregone conclusion. When you look at the pain and suffering that someone who's crucified goes through, the idea that he stayed conscious through that whole time really is a little bit unusual. But before giving his final words, he asks for something to drink. 
the Roman soldiers had some sour wine sitting there nearby the cross. Sour wine was an inexpensive drink that would have been just like one step up from watered down vinegar. Uh, and it was the common beverage of the people and also apparently of the soldiers. So they put some sour wine on a sponge and then they lifted up to him on a hyssop branch so he could quench his thirst. With his thirst quenched by the sour wine, Jesus cries out his final words. It is finished. He then bows his head and he gives up his spirit. It's important to notice the order of the events here. Jesus doesn't die and then his head slump over. Rather, he proclaims the completion of his work. He bows his head in an attitude of submission to the Father. And he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Jesus is fully conscious and aware of what he's doing here. This is to emphasize that he chose this moment to voluntarily give up his life as an act of self-sacrifice. John is emphasizing here that it's not the Roman soldiers who ultimately caused his death, but that Jesus chose to die for us at that moment. And that point is reiterated in the fourth and final event of the crucifixion that John records for us. The fourth and final event John records is that the soldiers don't break his legs, but they pierce his side. Take a look, starting in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they, look, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Jesus is killed on a Friday, which is the day before the Jewish Sabbath. And while every weekly Sabbath was sacred to the Jews, this Sabbath was particularly special because it was also the Passover. And for this reason, the Jewish leaders wanted to be sure to bury the criminals that were being crucified before the Sabbath. Because according to Jewish law, it would be a desecration to have the bodies hanging there during the Passover. Now, typically, death from crucifixion can take a very long time, sometimes days and that's exactly the way the Romans liked to do it because crucifixion was not just about the pain, wasn't just about the torture, but crucifixion was a public display of Roman power. Crucifixion would usually take place on a highway as you were going and coming out of a city. So it'd be like today, if you were gonna crucify someone the way the Romans did, you'd put the cross on I-5 right outside of the city of Eugene so that everybody coming down the freeway would see these guys hanging there for days because it was serving as a deterrent for any would-be criminals or anybody who would dare to, dare to rebel against the empire. But if the Romans did want to speed up death, what they would do is they would take a heavy hammer and they would crush the legs of the criminal. And what that would do is normally when you're on the cross in order to breathe, you had to push up on the nail that was through your feet in order to catch a breath. And if you cracked their legs and broke their legs, they would no longer be able to breathe. And within minutes, the person would die of suffocation. And so Pilate orders and the soldiers break the legs of the other two criminals crucified with Jesus. But when they come to Jesus, they do not break his legs because he's already dead. 
to make sure that he was dead, a soldier takes a spear and jabs it into his side. And if Jesus had been alive, then the pain for that spear would have, would have caused him to react. But because he didn't respond, the soldier knew that he was indeed dead and therefore they did not need to break his legs. John reports that when Jesus was pierced, blood and water poured out of his body. There's a lot of speculation amongst commentators as to the significance of the blood and the water. Some commentators say that because Jesus' death happened during the time of the Passover, that that the blood represents the the blood of the lamb from the Passover and the water represented the parting of the Red Sea. Other commentators say that the water represents baptism, that the blood represents communion. Personally, I, I think that's just a lot of speculation. I think it's reading a little too much into the passage. I think John is just recording for us what took place. And to him, to John, the piercing of the spear was clear evidence that Jesus was indeed dead. And it's important to John that his readers know that he was dead and that this really happened. Because look in verse 35, he makes a point of telling us as readers that he's an eyewitness to these events. He wants you to know this really happened. Verse 35, John says, he who saw it has borne witness. He's talking about himself here. He says his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you may believe. People, Jesus' death on the cross is not a mere myth. It's not a spiritual concept or an allegory. John is assuring us that he knew Jesus and that he was there. He was an eyewitness to the crucifixion, and he saw Jesus die on the cross. And while there is tremendous spiritual significance to Jesus' death on the cross, it is nonetheless a historical fact. These things are true. These are the facts. Jesus was crucified on a cross outside of Jerusalem. The soldiers who crucified him divided up his garments. He spoke to Mary and John from the cross. And then he proclaimed it as finished, and he voluntarily gave up his spirit. As such, the soldiers did not break his legs, but they pierced his side. This is what happened on the cross. And we have John's eyewitness testimony to these events. So we've answered the question, what happened on the cross? But now we turn to the question, why? Why did Jesus die? And why did he die this way? In other words, what's the significance of these events that John records for us? I want to give you three reasons why Jesus died in this manner. First, Jesus died the way he did to show us that he gave up his life willingly. Jesus was not ultimately killed by the Roman soldiers, but he willingly gave up his life. Look again at the moment of his death in verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus did not ultimately die of suffocation or exposure as is typical of those who are crucified. He, He didn't reach the place where he lost consciousness and could no longer control himself. Instead, John says that when Jesus finished up his work, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. These are active verbs. He bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. Meaning Jesus retained agency all the way through the cross and he gave up his life of his own accord. His life was not taken from him. He gave it up on his own terms. In John 10, verse 17, Jesus explains it this way. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus says that when he lays down his life, he is, it's a voluntary act. Nobody's taking his life from him. Rather, he gives up his life because he has the authority and the agency to do so. 
Now, it doesn't look like that. When, when you see Jesus dying, it looks like his enemies are the ones who are in authority, the ones in control. The Roman governor, Pilate, he thinks he's the one that has control over life and death for Jesus. But even his authority is under the ultimate authority of God. Do you remember that conversation that Jesus had with Pilate back in John chapter 19, verse 10 from a few weeks ago? Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Pilate thinks he's got the authority. But Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. It may look like the Jewish religious leaders who had brought him up for execution it may be, and it may look like the Roman Empire is the one that carried out that execution. But Jesus only allowed the religious leaders and the Roman Empire to have that authority because it fit his purposes. Why did Jesus die the way he did? First, it was in order to give up, to show that he was giving up his life willingly. Secondly, Jesus died the way he did because it fulfilled the scriptures. John tells us four different times in this passage that something that these events took place in order to fulfill scripture. Now, when we talk about Jesus fulfilling scripture, we can sometimes get the wrong impression that Jesus is up there on the cross with a, with a list of scriptures from the Old Testament that he's checking off. And when he gets to the bottom, he's done. He says, it's finished and he's completed the work. It's not as if Jesus is working consciously, thinking about these Old Testament texts and trying to arrange circumstances to make sure he did these things. Rather, when we see the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Testament, what we're seeing is a replication of a pattern in the Old Testament that in the Old Testament, God shows us patterns about how he operates, examples of how he does things. And then when we see those templates and those patterns repeated in the life of Christ, we know that it is God who is at work in the midst of those patterns. And so we should be able to recognize as Jesus is dying on the cross, how it fits with things that we've seen in the Old Testament. And we can say, that's God at work on the cross. This is not happening randomly. And so John tells us four times that these events were to fulfill the scriptures. The first time is in verse 24. In verse 24, John tells us, this was to fulfill the scriptures, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. John is quoting here from Psalm 22. And by the way, Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before the time of Jesus. And in Psalm 22, 18, it says, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. And then John says that the soldiers did these things because Psalm 22 said they would. When they divided his cloak and when they gambled away his tunic, the soldiers had unwittingly fulfilled the scriptures and had unknowingly become part of God's plan of salvation. The second fulfillment is in verse 28. Verse 28 says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. John here is referring to Psalm 69, 21, which says, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. The third fulfilled scripture is in verse 36, where John says, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. John is quoting here from Psalm 34, 20, which says, he keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. But there's another pattern in the Old Testament that we see fulfilled in Jesus' unbroken bones. Because back in Exodus 12, when God established the feasts of Passover, in his instructions for celebrating Passover, he says that each family is to slaughter a lamb and then to place the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the house. But when they slaughter the lamb, God explicitly states in Exodus 12:46, and you shall not break any 
of its bones. They were not to break the bones of the Passover lamb. And don't forget, Jesus is being crucified on the day before Passover. And it's on this day that the people would have been slaughtering their lambs in preparation for tomorrow's feast. So it's no mere accident that Jesus happened to be crucified on Passover. If we've been reading through the book of John closely, we should be expecting this. Because if you go clear back to John chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist proclaimed clear back in chapter one that Jesus is the Passover lamb who will take over our sins. And just as the Passover lamb would not have its legs broken, neither are Jesus's legs broken either because he's the Passover lamb. The fourth and final fulfillment of scripture on the cross is in verse 37. It says, and another scripture says, they will look on him who they have pierced. John is quoting from Zechariah 12:10 here, which says, when they look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over the firstborn. But that prophecy of Zechariah goes on. It doesn't end with mourning and sadness because Zechariah goes on to say in chapter 13, one, on that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. In other words, these Old Testament passages don't just talk about the death of the coming Messiah, but they put that death in the context. It is through that death, it says, that God will cleanse his people. And so when we see Jesus fulfilling these patterns of the Old Testament on the cross, it proves that the cross is no accident of history, but it's God who's at work here. In other words, if the Jewish people had read their Bible closely, this is exactly how they should have expected the Messiah to die because the scripture says, this is how God operates. And so Jesus died this way to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. Third, Jesus died this way because this was God's original plan for salvation. This was God's plan from salvation from the very beginning. When Jesus proclaims, it is finished, he's not merely stated that he's fulfilled the scripture. Rather, he's proclaiming that he has accomplished his ultimate purpose, that he has done all the work that the Father has sent him to do. And Jesus has been telling his disciples that this is the plan from early on in his ministry. If you go back to Matthew 16, it says, from that time, John began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day, be raised. See, Jesus was in control of the timing and the method of his death all through the story. In fact, when he was being arrested in the garden, remember when Peter gets out his sword and it cuts off Malchus's ear? Well, after he tells Peter to put his sword away, Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 26, he says, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus wasn't forced to the cross by circumstances outside of his control. He could have stopped it at any time, right up until the moment where he gave up his spirit. In other words, what, what happened on the cross is not God needing to pivot from the original plan because things got out of control. It, it's not God doing what he could to salvage the situation. Rather, this was God's plan of salvation from the very, very beginning. Peter explains this in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, 32, 23 speaking to the very people who had turned Jesus over to the Romans, Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
Peter says that yes, the Jewish leaders and the Roman Empire carried out that crucifixion, but this was the definite plan of God all along. Now, that doesn't absolve those who crucified Jesus of their part in murdering the Son of God. And it doesn't mean that God forced them to crucify Jesus, but it does mean that God, in his foreknowledge, knew that if he were to send his Son to us, that a sinful and a rebellious humanity would do his best to destroy him. And so knowing this, God used that knowledge in order to accomplish salvation. Do you hear how remarkable that is? That God, knowing what would happen, God, knowing that if he sent his son, he would die, he would say, that death is going to be the means by which I save the people who will actually kill him. God would use the ultimate act of sin to be the means by which he would save us from our sins. That is remarkable. In his commentary on the book of John, the late R.C. Sproul says it this way. He says, John is zealous to help his reader understand that what happened on the cross was not an accident of history, but it came to pass through the invisible hand of a sovereign providence. Jesus died this way to show us that his death was part of God's original plan to save his people. And that truth needs to drive home for us that our salvation rests in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So, so far this morning, we have asked and answered the question, what happened on the cross and why did Jesus die this way? So finally, we come to our third and most important question. How is Jesus' death applicable to us today? I mean, how does somebody's execution 2,000 years ago, halfway halfway around the world, how does that matter to us at all today? And it matters to us today because it's only through Jesus' death on the cross that we can find forgiveness of our sins. Take a look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews 10, picking it up in verse 11. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But Christ had offered for all time, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14 says, For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to find forgiveness of sins, people would bring an animal to the temple to be sacrificed. And the priest would slaughter that animal as payment for the guilt of their wrongdoing. And this is something that would happen day after day after day, because as it says here, the sacrifice of the animal was actually not sufficient to take away their guilt. But when Jesus died on the cross, he offered a single sacrifice for all sin, for all people, and for all time. It's a one and done sacrifice. And then when he completes that sacrifice, it says in verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. You know, if you've got a chore list that you try to get something done, yesterday, my wife gave me a list. We had to take down all the Christmas decorations. And so she gave me a list, go do all these things. And I did not get to sit down until I finished her list. (laughs) But when I finished the list, I sat down. And that's what's meant here when it says that when he sat down at the right hand of God, it means Jesus is sitting down because he's finished the list that the Father's given him. He has accomplished everything that the Father told him to do. His sacrifice was enough. It was sufficient. It was finished. And he sat down at the right hand of God. 
In this single act of sacrifice, Jesus has secured the forgiveness for our sins once and for all. There's no need for any more offerings. There's no need for any more sacrifices. His single offering for sin has perfected those of us who are God's people. One commentator summed it up this way. It says, with Jesus' death on the cross, the penalty for sin is completely served. The price of redemption is completely paid. The justice of God is completely satisfied and the deliverance of sinners is completely secured. In other words, the entire work of salvation has been accomplished once and for all by Jesus on the cross. And if that's the case, that's good news because that means there is nothing that you or I need to do in order to complete this finished work of salvation. There's no penance, there's no pilgrimage, there's no good deed that you must do in order to be saved. There's nothing you can do to subtract from or add to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. All you need to do is trust that what Jesus accomplished is enough. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and lean on, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My friends, life without Jesus is exhausting. Without Jesus, we have to create our own place in the universe. We have to create our own meaning. We have to create our own identity. And so we're constantly trying to prove ourselves. We're constantly trying to justify ourselves. We're, we're working as hard as we can to, to live up to our potential, to, to be all that we know that we should be. But then when we're quiet and we're alone and we're honest with ourselves, we know that we don't measure up. We're all too aware of our failure. We keep choosing self-destructive behaviors when we know better. We, we keep harboring hate for people when we know that we should love them. And it's in these quiet moments of self-reflection when we realize the truth of our own desperate situation. And in those moments, we can respond one of three ways. First, we can cover up our inadequacy by doubling down. So we're just going to try harder. We're just going to gut it out. We're going to push ourselves to more activity, more work, more effort. But in the process, we, we can't see that we're actually just covering up the darkness that's inside. And, and we actually start becoming prideful and arrogant. And we start believing that we really are better than we are. And, and we live in a, a life of self-deception that says we're okay. Or if we really take the time to be honest with ourselves, we know that we're not. The second way we can respond is to just give up. And so we just, we just resign ourselves to a life of quiet desperation as we descend into depression and into self-loathing and into addictive behaviors. But there's a third way we can respond. We can respond to the invitation of Jesus. He's inviting you off of the treadmill. He says to you, you don't need to work this hard to find meaning in life. You, you, don't, you don't need to put in all this effort to justify yourself because I've done the work for you already. On the cross, he finished the work for you. That's what he meant when he cried out, it is finished. He's proclaiming that once and for all, he has dealt with your guilt. He has dealt with your failure. He has dealt with your, your self-destructive behavior. He's dealt with your rebellion and he is standing there waiting to forgive you. And so if you will follow Jesus, he will carry your burden. In him, you can finally find rest. Because Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and in me you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is inviting you today to enter into his rest. He's inviting you to trust in his finished work 
on the cross. For those of you who have already become Jesus followers, you know what, the message is the same for us as well. Because I think what sometimes happens to us as Jesus followers is we put our trust in Jesus for that initial step of salvation, but then we start living out the Christian life as if it's a bunch of do's and don'ts that we have to follow, a checklist that we have to do to stay in God's good favor. So that to be a good Christian means, well, I got to get up and I better read my Bible this morning or God's not going to love me. Or I better pray because if I don't pray, that means I'm not a good Christian. I better go to church because if I don't go to church, then God's not going to like me anymore. I better make sure that my kids are memorizing Bible verses. Otherwise, I'm not a good Christian parent. And in doing all of this, I better not get angry at anybody. And I better not get frustrated at my family or my roommates. And we get to the end of the day. And when we fail in all those things, we fail like a failure as a Jesus follower. And we fall into that same life of uh, discouragement and exhaustion. But following Jesus was never meant to be lived that way. Jesus says his yoke is easy. He says his burden is light. So if we find following Jesus to be a heavy burden, then we're doing it wrong. Because Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And we're telling him when life is that, when, when we think the Christian life is that hard, what we're saying is, well, Jesus, it's mostly finished, but there's some things I have to do to really finish up the work. And so I'm going to try really hard to do this and do that to make you make sure that you still love me and you still like me. But Jesus says, it's finished. There's nothing you need to do to earn my love. There's nothing you need to do to earn my favor. If we're feeling this way, we need to look at what Paul says in Galatians 2, 20 and 21. Paul says in Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul says here that if we're trying to live the Christian life out of our own effort, we're not only are we going to find ourselves discouraged, but it says we're actually nullifying the grace of God. It's saying that we're acting as if Christ's death had no purpose because we're trying to add to what Christ had done on the cross. My friends, let us remember, we've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who lives, it's Christ who lives in us. We are not just saved by faith in Jesus, but we live out that life in faith in Jesus as well. My friends, perhaps the most powerful, liberating, and important words that Jesus ever said are these three words on the cross. It is finished. On the cross, Jesus accomplished everything that's needed for our sins to be forgiven. On the cross, Jesus did everything that is necessary for us to be reconciled and have relationship to God. On the cross, he did everything that's necessary for us to please God. So let us stop trying to finish Jesus's work for him. Let's trust in his finished work. And as we do so, we will find rest for our souls because our salvation rests in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.